Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm Morgan Wack, graduate student, co-producer of this podcast and affiliate of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. On today's episode, I'll be hosting a discussion with Asli Kansanar, who recently joined the Political Science Department here at the University of Washington, having previously worked as a postdoctoral research fellow at Nuffield College at the University of Oxford. Welcome, Asli, to both the podcast and the University of Washington. Hi, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Today, we'll be focusing our discussion on the intersection of perceptions and economic inequality, which is a subject you've examined in detail. To start off with, can you just give us a brief understanding of what perceptions are and how they differ from our understanding of real facts? Of course. So mostly in the models of political economy, where we try to understand why people make certain decisions, we usually think that people have certain uh, levels of utility from different things, right? Income, for example, or how much other people get or how much taxes they pay. And when we try to think how, may, how people make decisions, we usually plug in the statistical values of these different things, taxes, for example, or the level of inequality or the level of post-income tax. And we usually think that people know these things and they will take these statistical facts, put them into this decision model in their minds, make an optimization or a maximization, and then choose the best policy that maximizes their utility or minimizes their losses. However, recent research on political science have told us that the statistical facts can sometimes be really different from how people think about these facts or how people believe these, these facts are. So in my work, I try to make sense of the deviation between facts and perceptions. And I try to examine how these deviations from truth first exist and how those affect political and economic choices made by individuals in different contexts. So you say recently this has become a, a larger issue in the field. People have started to take perceptions more seriously. People are beginning to understand that a classification, even into a wide bin, you know, twenty to thirty thousand dollars, is not necessarily reflective of how people feel about their income or how people feel about uh, their current living conditions. So why is it that just recently, at least in your work and in the wider economic field, perceptions have been taken more seriously of late? Um, this is a great question. Well, actually, political, people who work in political behavior have known for ages that actually people don't know much about the political economy of things and politics in general. When you ask people about um, the spending of the US government on foreign aid, for example, or the military, people are really misperceived about these facts. And this has been known by scholars for many years now. However, there was a huge disconnect between scholars of political behavior and political economists. Although we've known that people actually are misperceived about really simple basic stuff, we've really never taken this notion into our models and incorporated the room for error in people's minds when we are studying how behavior occurs. And I think one of the reasons that really prompted this notion that mis people are misperceived and this 
could significantly affect political behavior comes from the fact that now we have so much more data and we have more ways in which we can learn about how people think about the world. Let's say 15 years ago, there were only public opinion surveys that were done maybe once a year, twice a year, that only asked certain questions that was found important by a subset of scholars, right? But the, with the survey experiments, with the easiness of doing surveys now, just going to, you know, you can just go to enter, you can hire 200 people and ask whatever you want to ask. Now we have the technology and the budget for that. People have progressively uh, learned that misperceptions do matter in giving decisions. So I think the fact that really binded these really two separate fields was the availability of more data and the ease of doing both survey experiments and surveys online right now. That makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that that's probably helped with, one of the main issues that it solved is the identification of systematic bias. As it seems like in previous models, while there was definitely knowledge that people may not have an accurate understanding of their own income relative to other people, it was assumed that people would miss, you know, north or south of the mark at relatively even pace. And so now you can see that there's actually a systematic bias. And so you investigate that in a couple of your papers. So maybe we can shift and look at your investigation of uh, progressive taxation support. And so you start this off by saying, you know, it's been assumed that people support progressive taxation or go against progressive taxation based on their income, which makes a lot of sense. If you're rich, you probably don't want to be taxed higher. If you're poor, you want the taxes to come from the other tax bracket. But you find this is actually not nearly as well correlated as people would think um, to the sense where a lot of people who are in the higher income brackets support progressive taxation and a lot of people who are in lower income brackets um, are actually against progressive taxation. And you come down to the understanding that this has to do with perceptions. Could you explain us through that thought process and how you went about testing this? Yes, sure. Um, so one of the first things when you take a political science or especially a political economy class is that the rich and the poor are in a constant struggle through time and space about tax rates, right? If we go back to the history of government, of history of democracy, we see that the rich is really against democratic reforms because they're afraid of poor taxing all their income and wealth away. And you get to learn about all this stuff and how there's supposed to be a class struggle when uh, on everything that's about taxes. And then you look at public opinion surveys from today and you figure out that actually everyone loves progressive taxation. Everyone wants to decrease economic inequality. And you know, when you compare these empirical findings with the theories that you learn in class, it doesn't make sense at all. For example, looking at data, you can see that 60% of American respondents with incomes higher than $100,000 per year support progressive taxation. And this percentage is 63 when you look at people who earn less than $25,000 a year. So it's almost the same, right? 63 versus 60%. Uh, 
Um, the same thing in France, if you look at people who earn more than 4,500 uh, 4, euros per month, or 75% of them support progressive taxation. However, this number only increases to uh, 80% when you look at people who earn 800 euros or less per month. So again, 72% versus 80%. It's not that different from each other, right? So when I was when I started working on my dissertation, this type of data really prompted me to figure out what's going on. Why is this the case? Because every theory that we learn in political economy classes tells us this ought to be the opposite way. Yeah, and so how did you go about looking into that? Would people say, oh, maybe this, this is just altruism on behalf of the rich. This is not necessarily a bias or misconception on their behalf. They're supporting progressive taxation because like you say, they don't want inequality. How can you show that that's not necessarily the case, that it is this misperception on a whole? Yeah, well, actually a lot of people who have taken on this challenge to explain the similarity between percentages of people from different brackets that support progressive taxation has, you know, that with this. And this is what I call utility function explanations in my paper. So they said, you know, previous works have focused on the effect of income on, on preferences for tax rates, but we think that people are interested in maximizing other things different from income, such as, you know, their altruistic feelings for the poor, or maybe they're afraid of inequality harming themselves. For example, corruption or crime rising. So that's why they want to pay more taxes. So the poor would have resources to feed themselves so they wouldn't engage in crimes, for example. Or uh, people said, you know, people are uh, inequality averse, so they actually get this utility from increasing inequality. That's why they want to pay taxes. And when I started working on my dissertation, I realized that there's this notion, especially when you're looking at survey data, that everyone puts themselves in the middle income class. And this was something that has been known. Many people knew that this was something you found in surveys but no one really tried to explain, what, explain why. This was, you know, this was something that everyone knew, but no one tried to explain at all. And looking at some other papers that have just started emerging on these issues, I realized maybe that I can explain this middle income bias and how that affects preferences over tax rates in return. And that's really interesting, because I think a lot of times when people think of perceptions, they think, wow, this is an interesting finding, but how does it actually affect behavior? How does it affect real world politics? And so that connection between support for specific types of policies and deviances in perceptions makes a lot of sense and helps explain something that, like you said, is something intuitive. People are like, yeah, I wouldn't rate myself as rich. I wouldn't rate myself as poor. And so there's ends up being this huge disconnect between the number of people that say they're middle class and the actual middle class. And so how did you look at this from a methodological perspective? I asked people about what they thought about, you know, how much do you have to earn in order to be poor, middle income, high income, or to be in the top 10%. Um, 
And I realized that the numbers that people reported for being in the, for classifying as poor or low income, middle income was not that different from how we would classify these people using statistical facts. But whenever you ask people about what they think they have to earn in order to be in the high income class or to be in the top 10 percentile, that's where people had significant misperceptions. They significantly overestimated the amount of money that you have to earn yearly to be classified as a high income individual or a household. And when you actually give people information about these brackets, they significantly changed their mind about government's involvement with um, decreasing inequality levels, as well as preferences over progressive tax rates. So is this an a information asymmetry issue? Is it because it's unbounded on the upper limit? I know you talk about the heuristic side of this, the idea that we picture a rich person and we have a very distinct picture in our minds that's not representative. So you can talk as to what do you think is happening in the minds of people when they say, you know, maybe you need to make $2 million a year to be rich when that's obviously much too high. Yeah, um, so there is a lot of work that tries to, that try to explain how make people make how people make up information when they don't know the statistical facts. And most of this work comes from psychology. People usually use um, some heuristics, um, some informational shortcuts. And while doing that, people use what's available to them as information. So if you don't know about the level of inequality, for example, or if you're uninformed about how much the rich earns or where you would rank yourself in the uh, distribution of national income, you would you know, very naturally think about people, right? You would think about a group of people and you start comparing yourself to these people in the group that you thought about. And this is what we can call a reference group. You make up a reference group, you start comparing yourself to those individuals, and you start thinking about what type of income these people might be making a year. And then by through that exercise, you first figure out a national distribution, and then you figure out where you rank in that distribution, and then you can just think about um, um, mean income for these different types of group in that distribution you just made out of um, using people's income who belong to your reference group. And in my work, I argue that people make mistakes in whom they select into their reference groups. And they're more likely to select people who are super, super, super rich and who might distort First, the distribution of income in your mind. Second, who would significantly distort the average income of the high income group or people who are in the top 10 percentile in the national income distribution. That makes a lot of sense. I think when we picture someone who is very wealthy, 
we would probably picture someone more like Bill Gates or Elon Musk rather than, you know, someone down the street who's a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, how have you found that social media and the expansion of access to the internet or access to social media um, platforms and these new ways in which we interact with potential different reference groups has had in the wider literature any effect on who we view as being the prototypical individual for these types of groups? Has it made us more likely to view someone extremely rich or has it not really had an effect? Um, to be honest, I haven't done work on this yet, but this is exactly where I want to take my research to in a few years. Because um, let's talk about reference groups again. Mm -hmm. And let's go back 40 years ago. Let's imagine we're living in the 70s, right? Someone comes to you and asks you about what you think about your own income, what you think about the income inequality in the US, for example, and where do you think your household would rank in this national income distribution? Well, in 70s, you would probably um, think about your neighbors, your colleagues, your friends, or your family members, and your reference group would most likely include these people, right? Obviously, you could think about some rich, famous people that you see either on the TV or in newspaper, but these people are going to be somehow not going to be really important in your mind because maybe you see them once a week on the TV or you read about them not very usually on the newspapers. However, come to today, when you think about who is rich and who is poor, an average person with a smartphone most, most probably follows Kardashians or Elon Musk or you know other influencers on Instagram or on Facebook. And you see how many Louis Vuitton purses one of these Instagrammers have and you, you're constantly subject to this, right? And different from people in the movies or on TV shows, you know these people are real. These people are not fictional characters. So in your mind, you have all these rich people who are living their best lives, who own like hundreds of Louis Vuitton bags, who take exotic holidays with their whole families in a faraway island just to party as if everything is normal during COVID-19 COVID when you're trying to make ends meet because you can't work in your store anymore. So, you know, this mismatch has um, grown substantially higher with, the, with what technology offers us informationally, right? Before your reference group was Jonas's, you tried to keep up with Jonas's and you're, now you're trying to keep up with Kardashians and this ought to have a significant impact on who's your reference group is and how that affects your perceptions about economic inequality. I wonder if that's part of the reason why we've seen a spike in progressive taxation policies, the tax the rich sorts of policies where we understand that we're going after the top 0.01% rather than the person down the street. So th th you make a good point about local cues. So you talk a bit about preference formation, which is kind of the black box of political economy that a lot of people don't want to dip into, but you do in your research. I think that's really interesting. And so I wonder if you could talk us through 
your idea for your second paper on this, which has to do with local queues and differences in support for Brexit and support for local policies in the UK. Why are local conditions important and how do they help form uh, preferences? Great question. Um, a lot of work that has discovered misperceptions said and claimed that some of national misperceptions might be fooled and affected by what's going on in the local. So a lot of scholars said, uh, okay, people are misperceived about the lo uh, national economy and that's all right, because you know people don't see what's going on nationally, right? Obviously you can read about it on the newspapers, you can see what's going on nationally on the TV. However, it's stuff like economic inequality, it's really not easy to observe what's going on nationally. So people said, when individuals try to um, guess what's going on nationally, they just look at what's local and they use local information to generate national information and they base their policy preferences of that, on that information. Um, so, but people like scholars thought people would for sure know exactly what's going on around in their locality. And this is something that we wanted to examine because, you know, we know that people could be misperceived about anything and everything. And we wanted to go back to the drawing board and see if people could really see without any misperceptions, without any misinformation, what's going on in their own locality. Um, this is important for, as I told you, both informationally, because what's local sometimes affects your perceptions about the national, but it's also materially important because sometimes people feel more connection to their local environment and they care more about what's going on in their locality more than they care about what's going on nationally. Um, so we thought this was really important to work on and we tried to understand how people perceive inequality, economic growth, unemployment levels, for example, in their local authority levels in the UK using British data. And we figured out people who are richer, economically more secure, or who earn more income tend to not see inequality as rising or economy as um, being in a bad shape uh, when you compare themselves, the, when you compare them to people who live in the same local authority, but who are much poorer, who are not homeowners, or who are not economically secure. So we figure out that even if you live in the same place, your personal and economic conditions have an effect on what you see. So you see the world through the lenses of your economic and personal uh, conditions. So that was something really interesting to figure out. And that also tells us that people could be misperceived about their locality as well. It's not something that has to do with only has to do with the national, but it also has a lot to do with um, the local conditions as well. Yeah, that's inc incredibly fascinating. And um, you talk about a few different things here that I think 
are interesting. One of them is the influence of visual stimuli and the oversized importance that that plays. So maybe you can give us a sense of how your own personal wealth or your own personal success, employment, why is that affected by visual stimuli? Why is it that a large, very affluential house makes a bigger difference than, you know, maybe five or six derelict homes? What is it about visual stimuli that really kind of distorts or drives our perceptions? Well, visual stimuli is almost like an information treatment on an experiment, right? Um, it, majestic images of wealth or poverty could really affect the ways in which you think um, local economy is doing. And what's important with the effect of visual stimuli in the local conditions is that you see these things almost every day, right? If there is a, like, a, let's say there is a new mansion that is built on your way to work and it's just grand, it's incredible. It has a pool, it has two tennis courts and you see it every day, twice on your work to, on your way to, the, to your work and on your way back to home. So seeing this cube twice every day for maybe five years is really ought to be effective on how you perceive your locality is doing. The same thing with store closures, for example. Imagine walking down the street every way to go to class, for example, or to go to your work or to go to the bus stop. And imagine seeing all your favorite stores getting shut down day after day. This is first, important because it affects you emotionally as well. The things that you're attached to emotionally, maybe the, the coffee shop that you get your coffee from every day shuts down because there is no uh, more work for them. Or, you know, a local store that sells pottery closes down because the demand falls substantially because of the economic crisis, let's say. That emotionally affects you and that also make a big difference, but also visually, even if you don't know these people, even if you don't shop from these people, you see stores closing down and it really tells you every day that something is really wrong in your locality. Something is really bad with the economy. Again, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of these perception things, how people develop understandings of their localities and the national economy um, really seems to make a more intuitive sense than some of these models. And I'm wondering if you could talk us through, I have a particular interest in kind of the populist politics in Europe and, and globally, and you talk a lot about Brexit in this paper. And I'm wondering if you could talk us through the findings on the role that local perceptions played in support for Brexit. And I find it very interesting that these local perceptions played such an outsized role when compared to the usual factors we would throw into a regression model, like general income and location. Yeah, so people who thought the economy was doing bad, inequality was getting higher, um, voted for Brexit. So, and this doesn't have a very significant relationship with how things were going on. So controlling both for statistical facts and perceptions of people, we found that, that perceptions were more important in shaping um, votes for Brexit, which is really important, right? Because we have all this literature on how economic troubles 
or be like being stuck in left behind places drives voting tension for Brexit. And then we take this to data and we actually see that perceptions are more important in shaping these decisions than the statistical facts that characterizes where you live. So we thought this was incredible. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you think, so you mentioned earlier that one of the major issues in between measuring perceptions and measuring kind of reality, if you want to call it that, is just the ability to gather data. It's much more difficult to gather someone's perception. It's, it's also much more fluid. Right? Perceptions can change relatively frequently, whereas income is much more steady. Do you see there being better tools going forward or more investment in the type of data we would need to measure these sorts of things? If they are so influential in terms of policy decisions, behavior, uh, support for populist parties and far-right parties, do you see there being an investment that's shifting in this direction in terms of national government priorities or has this still remained sort of on the fringes of economic research? Um, there's certainly a move forward to better quantify and identify misperceptions. If you look at a lot of um, surveys, for example, British election study or um, ISSP surveys that comparativists usually use in doing this type of work, now started to ask what people think about various parameters that are thought to be important uh, in decisions relating to the economy and, and politics. Um, and the other thing to know is you don't really have to ask more questions in a survey because that's obviously more expensive, right? But maybe knowing that misperceptions can play a huge role in defining you know, what people think about various things, you can design your questions better. For example, one of the questions that is used a lot by scholars who work on welfare policies is, asking people, do you think those with high income should pay more in taxes compared to those who earn low incomes? And you know, if you know that people have misperceptions about these things, maybe instead of wording your question, you know, saying those with high income and those with low income, you can actually say, do you think people who earn over $200,000 a year should pay more in taxes compared to those who earn less than $25,000, for example. You know, you don't even have to add more questions. You can just make sure the question that you put on your survey really gets at what you're trying to ask people, right? So I think now more people are aware of these things and now more people and more institutions are either trying to implement questions in the surveys that asks about perceptions or try to rephrase the questions that we used to use in survey research to make sure that these questions really measure that what we want to measure. That's encouraging. It's always nice to hear that people are adapting and improving surveys here and there. So I have one final question about your current work. When you did your job talk at the University of Washington, you actually presented on, on a different paper that had to do with redistribution by elites. 
And I'm wondering how you see the through line of your work tying into your other paper on kind of elite redistribution and neighborhood perceptions. What do you see as the underlying driver of your research? Is it inequality? Is it perceptions? Or is it some sort of combination of these important issues and how we address local economic and national economic conditions? Yeah, um, so I think, although, you know, since the start of our talk, I've been talking about misperceptions. I've been, you know, I've said it a thousand times. Everybody has misperceptions. No one knows a thing. This is not true for everyone. I think this is only true for people who are in the middle of the distribution. People who are super poor knows, they know that they're poor. Like you don't have to go and correct them, right? They, they're not gonna think that they're super rich. They know they're poor. They know they're struggling. The same thing with the super rich, the, the households in the top one or maybe top 0.1%, right? They know, they know that they're rich. So their policy choices usually reflect their uh, utility maximization, right? They usually don't want to pay taxes. They usually, even if they give a part of their income to finance a school, a university, a public good, they want to make sure that they use that amount of money to maximize their utility in some other way. This could be, you know, to gain respect from people from their hometown, or maybe there's no school in, in a place that they would really like a school to be built in. The government is not doing it, so they do it with their own finances instead. However, the rich knows that they're rich and they want to make sure that every penny, every dollar they spend reflects, you know, reflects their what, stuff that they care about or stuff they are invested in. Even if they, they're not you know, doing what they're doing just to make sure that their own wealth is maximized, but they like to spend their dollars on issues that they care about. Do you think this is part of the reason why in many democracies, the middle class has such a difficult time forming a successful political coalition against the super rich and they have more cohesive policy demands? Um, yeah. Let me think. So the problem, I think, is that everybody thinks they're middle income, right? So a lot of people think that they're middle income. People who are in the 18th percentile, people who are on the 15th percentile, people who are on the 14th percentile. And when everyone thinks they're middle income, but their needs are so very different from each other and what they want to pay as taxes is so very different from each other. It's really hard for these people to come under the umbrella of being middle income and form a successful coalition to get what they want, right? So although these people think they belong to the same class, they don't. And if you put them in the same room, I'm sure they will start fighting about what they really need and what they really want and what they really want the government to spend on. So I think this is, as you said, one of the reasons that they can't form a successful coalition to really maximize their utilities from uh, political uh, and government policies. 
So if some political operatives wanted to help the middle class or at least help people better understand their own reality, how easy is it for people to shift these perceptions? Are these things that are fairly fine grain or is this a lack of information that can be solved with, as you said, maybe a, you know, a bar that shows where they are on the income distribution or general information dissemination, or is it more complicated than that? Are these kind of ingrained attitudes that are more difficult to dislodge? I think this is really difficult because um, not because it's really um, difficult to understand these things or, you know, it, nowadays it's really important, it's really easy to give information on anything and this could be done. However, I, you know, as someone who has thought a lot about these things and someone who has tried to design a lot of experiments with these type of information, the problem is that there are so many ways that you can convey information and without saying lies, without lying to people, you can really frame the type of information you're giving and you can really change people's minds about these issues. And this is kind of dangerous because politicians and elites or you know, NGOs or people who talk on Twitter, for example, they can frame an information, they can frame information in a way that serves their own um, goals, right? So I feel like educating the public on this on a really like a scientific way is really difficult. I'm just going to give you two examples. I'm gonna just read you two sentences, one from Obama and the other one is just taken from uh, a web page that tries to educate people on the income distribution. And none of these sentences are lies. Both of them reflect the truth. So I'm not gonna be lying, but I'm just going to give you different types of information in different framing. So the first one goes, this is by Obama, by the way. The top 10% no longer takes in one third of our income. It now takes half. Whereas in the past, the average CEO made 20 to 30 times the income of the average worker. Today's CEO now makes 273 times more. This is information one. Now I'm going to read the information too. To be considered in the top 10% of taxpayers nationally, you'd need an annual income of $480,000. The top 10% of taxpayers make at least $140,000. These figures are based on 2015 income tax data. And no, you don't have to be millionaires to be considered super rich. And these are true, like both of them, both of these sentences reflect the truth. I'm not lying. It's just the type of information that you give to people is really effective on how they think about these issues. So with political figures and elites who have incentives to make people believe in certain truths, they can really use these things and they do use these type of informations. And I think this is one of the reasons that the public could be so polarized about what they think about income inequality and what they think the government should do to increase, uh, to uh, 
um, decreased income inequality in the U.S. and, and other places as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. I do think it comes back a bit to the kind of the unboundedness of income and how it's almost a logarithmic scale where you have people making billions of dollars and they're compared to people making $100,000, $150,000. And there are also peculiarities that I think that help to store things further. You say, you know, per person income, but then people would say, oh, I have a certain number of children or I live in a very expensive area. And so there's always ways to make it so it's not a, a perfect one-to-one -one comparison. Um, and I, I do think it becomes more complicated the more you dig into it. And so I, I agree with you, unfortunately, that I think it's, it's very tough and not as easy as just giving people information. But uh, I'm looking forward to your future work and hearing more about whether or not you can come up with some clever experiments to, to maybe get at that. And if you can get at how social media and these new forms of reference group creation are impacting maybe people new to those sorts of types of platforms or people who use those at higher rates than other individuals. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about today or? No, I think I said everything I wanted to say. Thank you, this has been super fun. Perfect, well, we'd love to have you back anytime. This has been great. And welcome to the University of Washington again. Thank you, I'm super excited, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.